So first, uh, Micah, chapter 5, verse 2 to 6. Hear now God's word. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. And now Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east uh, to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the, uh, of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him... Bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now this morning that you would help us to set aside our earthly cares and to hear your word, to receive it in the humility, um, the posture without which we cannot know the truth uh, nor receive it. So help us by your Spirit uh, to have open hearts and ears that we may hear the gospel news about the Lord Jesus Christ this Lord's Day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not afraid to admit that at this time of year, or maybe even from late October, <clears throat> that I enjoy listening to a bit of Christmas music. Okay, maybe not a bit, uh, but we don't exactly have the climate for it here in South Africa, yet uh, songs of snow and so on are very comforting to me. I love listening to Michael Bublé's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town, but the lyrics might be worth a little closer scrutiny. Here's a little extract. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. 
He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. And at the end of the chorus, we hear the ominous news. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Now, some may mistake the Santa idea for something mystical and heartwarming. But really, it's quite the opposite. There is nothing wondrous, nothing transcendent, nothing life-giving, no good news whatsoever on Santa's list. Santa's is just basically plain old karma wrapped up in a woolly red coat. Santa blesses those who do good. But our text tells us that God is sending a king who is going to bless those who deserve death. Santa bestows good gifts on those who are saint-like, but God is sending a Messiah, a Savior, the Son of God, who will give the gift of eternal life to lawbreakers, underdogs, and scoundrels. And this is God's way of redemption in the world. And it is the basis of hope that's offered in seed form to the city of Judah and the people of Judah and comes to us in full bloom in the Lord Jesus Christ's birth. Uh, Our text here is a pretty well-known text among the not-so-well-known minor prophets. So a little context is necessary then to understand the meaning of our text. So this is the book of the prophet Micah. It's a collection of speeches, prophecies that he gives. uh, And this is contemporaneous with the ministry of Isaiah in in Jerusalem. In Micah, some of the primary overall themes are both judgment and forgiveness. The Lord is coming as judge to scatter his people in judgment for their wickedness, for their transgressions and sins. But the prophet Micah also brings this great news that the same Lord and judge is going to act to them also as their shepherding king who, according to the promises of his covenant, especially to Abraham, will gather them together as a shepherd. He will protect them from his enemies, and he will forgive them from, his, from their sins. Our prophets in Israel, they have a function to charge God's people with their covenant disobedience, where they have transgressed what God required of them and what they had promised to do. And in Micah, Micah comes along and basically gives them a library of all the sins that they have committed. These included things like idolatry, seizing other people's property, so theft, the failure of their government to lead civilly in a just way, uh, their religious leaders, uh, and even the prophets that God had sent. They involved uh, personal sacrifices, and they extorted people. Uh, What's quite shocking is the level of judgment which God announces against the people in Micah. But then also comes an oracle, a a prophecy about how God is going to uh, restore them and send them a king who's going to lead them out of the, the... the attack and devastation of their enemies. Uh, In terms of the position of this passage in the book, that's the book of Micah overall, what is this text doing? 
Well, the nation uh, of Judah is under siege by the Assyrians. And uh, the siege is, is set, and they are looking in the distance at these enemies who are going to come and seemingly annihilate them. They are desperate. They are afraid. They are terrified because Assyria has wiped out all sorts of foreign nations. In this section that we're going to get to in the text, the Messiah who Micah is promising is going to come and actually not just save and restore the previous Davidic kingship. This rulership is going to be extended to the, the peace from this rulership will be extended to all the corners of the earth. And so uh, the city of Bethlehem is, is treated as kind of like a, a woman who is in labor, who is going to be delivering a king according to Micah's prophecy. So right now, as Micah is speaking to the people in our text that we read, he's uh, holed up in Jerusalem uh, with the remnant during this siege from Assyria. And Micah is in Jerusalem, sort of like Isaiah was as well, and saying, the Lord has sent this foreign nation against you, Assyria. They were terrifying. If you remember from our sermon series through the the book of Nahum, they were a war machine, a death machine with cruel and powerful weapons, great military might and power throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. And they did cruel and terrible things. They would put the heads of defeated enemies on stakes around the entrance to the city gates and make people pass by their relatives dead and hanging from the walls. They were kind of like the imperial, uh, the imperial enemies in Star Wars, seemingly an unstoppable force with these massive weapons. The, the capital of Israel uh, in Samaria had already fallen in the north. And so now Assyria has moved down to Judah to lay siege to them because Judah had been safe up to this point because they were paying massive tributes to Assyria. Uh, And we discussed in a sermon series on Nahum how that would keep a peace and would give them protection from Assyria as long as they kept paying these tithes, essentially. Well, they thought maybe we should get a bit more serious about revamping our political and religious system. And the Assyrians are so big, they won't really notice if we divert some of the funds away. Well, the Assyrians did notice. And after uh, defeating Israel in the north, they're now turning to, to Judah and coming forward from there. What's quite shocking is that there have been a few good kings in the history of, of Judah, but there have been a lot of terrible kings. And in fact, as we heard from the list of charges from Micah, things are heading downhill fast. And what comes then to be surprising is God chooses a tiny little town just outside of Jerusalem from which to raise up a king. This is a small, insignificant little town, but the world's greatest king and the world's savior will come from there. It does, though, have a little bit of history to it, as we will come to see shortly. 
So Micah now is shifting focus from what he's talked about in the book so far, uh, which is the weak king who is uh, evil, uh, Hezekiah. Uh, sorry, from the weak Hezekiah to this victorious Messiah who will be born in a place called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And it's given an epithet, uh, um, which means to be fruitful, Ephratah. And as glory is ascribed to this obscure random little town where he says, one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. Now, the Lord's chosen Bethlehem for two reasons. The first is, uh, it says, for you are small. And in fact, so small that you don't even get a place in the, in the lineage of the tribes of Judah. All right, so when the clans of Judah are listed in Joshua 15 and 2 Chronicles and Micah chapter 1, Bethlehem doesn't even get a mention. It's too small, too far off the grid. Uh, if we were writing a reversal story of this magnitude, we'd probably pick a really famous, really large city like Jerusalem. But no, God chooses a backwater little town that is so small, they, their vote counts don't even show in the general elections. God has chosen the small and the lowly city of Bethlehem for a great saving act. As Paul would say, that is exactly what happens when God saves us, is that he saves the small and the insignificant and the needy that no one may boast. Uh, the smallness of Bethlehem teaches us a major lesson, and that is that salvation rests not on any quality within us, but rather objectively on something that comes from God. So Bethlehem had no reason to be chosen by God from where to draw his king. And yet, that is precisely what makes Bethlehem God's chosen place. Uh, secondly, the other reason that uh, God chooses Bethlehem is because the Messiah then is, a, is connected to an, another famous king who did come from Bethlehem. And that is David, who in 1 Samuel, we are told, was an Ephrathite. Um, was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, David came from the smallest town, and he was the smallest brother, a brother that they didn't even bother to mention. His father didn't even bother to mention when the prophet came searching uh, for, the, for a potential future king. So God had delivered his people in the past by raising up Someone from a random small, a random small person from a random small town. And that mo person turned out to be the most famous king, David, who was also a shepherd day, shepherd uh, king. So what is happening here is the throwback. Remember the good old days when we had a righteous king who protected us against our enemies, who crushed the giant Goliath and his great nation, the Philistines. So Micah is telling Judah, God is going to do something like this again. And really, that's what the Christmas gift, the Christmas news is about. That God is going to send a redeeming, protecting, shepherding king. A king from ancient time. Who's the king? Is it some 
then connected to King David. So in verse uh, 3 to 4 then, until he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor, so the one who's the city from where the king is going to come forth, has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This king is going to have a uniting function as well when he is born. Now the idea there is that there will be repentance, that people will turn back to the rightful king, which is precisely what we see begin to happen at Pentecost, in, in, as, uh, as we see testified by, by Luke in Acts. Today, Jesus' brothers are not just from Israel, but are from all over the world. We are here, believers, sitting in South Africa. That this Davidic king has raised, has been raised up, and that we looked to him, and that have, we have been grafted and united to the remnant. So ultimately, there's a shepherd king who's going to come and gather and then deliver a remnant into safety. This deliverer will come and function as a new David. And he will ironically come from an, a region that is under Assyrian control to come and defeat Assyria. Now at the time that Micah is preaching this message and delivering this message, the Assyrians, as we mentioned, were in siege of Jerusalem. And so he picks the Assyrians naturally as the enemies of the Messiah. As we see, the enemies of the Messiah are not just Assyria. Uh, he is looking through this prophetic lens, and what he sees is Assyria. But ultimately, we know that these enemies are going to be far more numerous and great than simply Assyria. And that leads us to uh, Matthew chapter 2, because now when we've looked at through multiple prophetic texts in the, in the past. I explained the prophetic idiom. So by a reminder, what that means is that when a prophet is speaking, we're kind of looking down a telescope lens and we see something in the future. But behind what we see, there might also be something else. So while he is currently seeing Assyria at the gate, the Messiah has more enemies than that in the future. So what's interesting for us to have a look at is that in the New Testament now, after when Christ is born in Bethlehem, we have a bunch of, these are wise men is an interesting, but not so accurate translation of what these men are. They are basically pagan astrologers who are very interested in the birth of the Messiah. And they come to, they want to find out about this king. They want to give honor to this king. So they go to the people who should know about this king, God's people, Israel. Uh, here, represented by the king of uh, Israel, or this area, Herod. So they come to ask uh, these people of God, who are represented here by the priests and, and, and king, but they don't know. They don't actually know what the um, Magi are looking to find out. This is Israel, in theory, but they don't even know God's law. 
How do we know they don't know God's law? Because Herod summoned the assembling all, all the chief priests and scribes. What's the matter with that? Well, God's law says that there is one high priest who is appointed for life. But what, what the people of Israel have done is they've abandoned God's law and they've turned the office of high priest into a multiple office that's political. One where they can seize power and enrich themselves rather than serve God and be served by him through the priestly ministry. They don't, they don't know God's law at all. Now, what we see is Christ is essentially born into the same kind of situation that, uh, that was being prophesied by Micah. In that, there was an unrighteous king at the time, like Hezekiah, and a fearful people. But what's quite surprising is that when he inquired, when, he, when Herod inquired of the scribes and the, and the priests to say where Jesus, would, the Christ, would be born, they changed the wording of Micah's prophecy. Because Micah said, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, who are too small. Now the priests say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. So you are not the least among the rulers. And the reason is, is that the one who is going to be born there is great. And that is what makes the little town of Bethlehem great. And we begin to see in uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the one who is going to come and produce this worldwide peace. He is a lowly, uh, a lowly king in appearance, appearing in a manger for animals. And he does quite a lot more than simply fulfill uh, or restore the Davidic kingship, but he does so in a consummate way. He is the king whose eternal origins, meaning his origins from old, i.e. from David, are established, and he calls himself the chief shepherd who stands with his sheep. It's in John chapter 10. And he's identified, he calls himself, as the shepherd struck down by God. And he will become peace. He granted peace first to who? His disciples, those who he drew to himself, who he chose fellowship with. Then, beyond this, peace will move to all nations. How? Because the church is to go and to teach and to baptize into the name of Christ. So this good news of peace through Jesus Christ is what Acts chapter 10 tells us will be preached to all corners of the world. But while this peace is going out, there is still a, a very long time, a time we are now in, where there is still war and turmoil. And it doesn't appear that, although the message of this peace has extended to much of the world, 
uh, that peace itself has not been realized. And that is because, although it is in Christ's birth that peace enters the world and this good news of the gospel is proclaimed, remember, thinking about the prophetic idiom, what Micah doesn't know is that the, the, what the Messiah will do will be delivered in stages. And the ultimate fulfillment of this peace throughout the world will only take place when Jesus returns. And when he does, he will rule the earth and restore the created order. And nations will live in the light of Christ's glory. So, with that in mind, perhaps the Christmas story has been chilled out a little bit too much. When we hear it, we don't hear messages connected with warfare. But that is exactly what is happening, because the Messiah who comes will bring peace by exterminating uh, his people's enemies. Right? Assyria is being promised uh, by Micah to be wiped out in a flood of God's judgment. And so too, when Christ returns... He will put all his enemies under his feet as a footstool. Now, it's true that he defeated the power of sin and death on the cross. But he will only bring to full realization those, uh, the, the abolishment of their enemy when he returns. And this is the ultimate reality being represented by Micah to these people in a symbolic vision. Right? It's got a literal sense in that God then did deliver the people from the Assyrians. How? Well, he sent Babylon to wipe out the Assyrians. So in the immediate sense, God fulfilled his promise to Judah. They literally expected a deliverance from Assyria, and they got it. But God was promising something greater. He was promising that the ultimate enemies, which is the power of the prince of, this, of the air, Satan, the world, uh, the flesh, sin, these ultimate, these ultimate enemies will be crushed by a king who is Christ, the Lord Jesus. And so when he was born, he came to fulfill this office as the one who would suffer for sins and die in our place, and he would offer righteousness. Because although David was described as a righteous man, he sinned. But Christ came as the perfect one who established righteousness for all time for his people. And when he was crucified, he did defeat the power of sin and death and Satan. So our shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the fulfillment of the prophecy of sending seven princes and eight rulers out that we read in Micah is fulfilled in the church because Christ sends as a kind of, rather than commanders, he sends spirit-endowed, self-sacrificing elders with Christ's authority to rule and shepherd and care for his people until these are just under-shepherds, until they fade away at the return of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the weapon of the church is not which it, it, what Micah was prophesying as a sword, a physical sword, which was Babylon, that would wipe out the Assyrians. The sword that is wielded by the church is the sword of the Spirit. The news of the gospel, the power of God for salvation to those who believe. So how do you get Christ to be your king, your shepherd? Well, you must believe in his birth. You must believe in his divine identity, his perfect obedience in dying on the cross, his perfect obedience in fulfilling God's law. You must believe in his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his return to save his people, where he will establish a peaceful and perfect rule that all nations would worship in the light and reflection of his glory. Uh, to bring it back to where we began, this is the best news because we are not on the nice list. We are lawbreakers, underdogs, scoundrels, outsiders, weak, broken, weary. And that's the good news because those are the people that God has sent his king to save. In our text, Israel's human ruler, Hezekiah, could not defend himself and his people. So Israel had to turn to their divine ruler. And that is precisely the response required to the message of Christmas by us. Because we cannot save ourselves. Instead, a child has been born to us, and we must turn to him. Let earth receive the king.